I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. In this series of podcasts, we've been trying to go beyond the day-to-day story of Russia's war on Ukraine and look at the wider context, the international geopolitical ramifications. Perhaps one of the biggest questions in relation to that is the question of China. And so I'm really happy to be speaking to Bonnie Glazer. She's director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Bonnie, welcome to Doomsday Watch. Thank you for having me. So uh, from the outset, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not there was some kind of deal cooked up between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping when Putin went to the uh, Winter Olympics. What's your uh, perception of what might have transpired there and whether or not that has a material impact on Russia's war in Ukraine? Well, I think that when Xi Jinping met with Vladimir Putin on February 4th, they probably covered a lot of issues. We know that the joint statement that they issued, uh, of course, was very comprehensive uh, as uh, the two leaders wanted to, I think, lay down a marker about how important their strategic relationship is. Uh, There are uh, obviously debates about what Putin may have said to Xi Jinping about whether he was going to use military force in in Ukraine. Uh, My guess is that if he uh, indicated in some way that he planned to invade, that he probably did not go into great detail. um, And it would be unlikely that Xi Jinping would ask him uh, to convey the details of his plans. Uh, But I think that the two leaders uh, have a close relationship. They've met 38 times. Uh, I would be surprised if Putin did not in some way uh, give a heads up. But let's remember at that point, Vladimir Putin himself may have thought that this was going to be over in 48 or 72 hours. He may have had the image of Crimea in 2014 in his mind and thought that this would be over very quickly. Right. And then perhaps about a week into the invasion, there was some talk that China was going to supply Russia with with military equipment. Now that, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that doesn't appear to have taken place, maybe because of very clear statements against it from the Americans. Is that something that you think is, is still a possibility? Is it still likely that China will support Russia in that direct military fashion, which after all, the West has done the same for Ukraine? Well, the Biden administration appears to have had intelligence early on uh, about a conversation, and we don't know um, who, of course, was involved in that conversation, Uh, but uh, usually 
governments don't reveal these details because of uh, sources and methods that they want to uh, not make public. But it does appear that uh, there was evidence of Russia asking for some military assistance and China uh, indicating that it might provide it. Uh, But I don't know if any of those are, are, are really reliable. But the core question is really an important one. Uh, and the United States has told, you know, at the highest level, President Biden had the virtual conversation with Xi Jinping and conveyed very firmly that there, there would be uh, negative consequences for the U.S.-China relationship if China provides uh, material support to Russia's military or its economy. And I believe that that message was also enforced uh, at the EU-China uh, summit that uh, that just took place. And we are watching, I'm sure, very closely uh, with satellites and other capabilities what the Chinese are doing and whether they they provide any any support. I think that the Chinese are unlikely uh, to provide any major military support. You know, there could be something uh, transferred through third parties uh, in a way that could not be traced, uh, but they're not going to supply something like cruise missiles uh, that uh, could be found in a building that had been destroyed and then have Chinese markings on it. Uh, That is certainly out of the question. Uh, But uh, there's possibility, for example, of commercial drones being supplied. The Chinese continue to say that they will conduct normal trade and financial transactions with Russia. Uh, Of course, they continue to buy things like uh, oil, um, as do many other countries, uh, even Japan and and India, many European countries. So that's not surprising. But I think that military support uh, of, of any significance is really likely to cause a really negative impact on the U.S.-China relationship, which is already um, at a at, at a dangerous point, I would say. Yeah, and th- that feels like a a really good point to kind of tip this discussion forward in, in into the the wider context. We, we talked specifically about where China might be on the tactical situation in this war, but there's a much bigger question here, which is that it feels as if Russia has taken a step that has really divided the world. And you've got possibly a world in which authoritarian governments and democratic governments now are far divided from one another. As you've just mentioned, the relations between the United States and China and arguably other Western countries as well are already in a very difficult place. So in the light of this war, which of course is ongoing and and we don't know how it will finally end up, how does this situate China's relations with Russia? And then I suppose going on from that, China's uh, increasingly complicated relations with America and other Western countries. From the beginning of the war, China has been trying to balance three competing interests, uh, and it does not want to be forced to choose among them. It wants to protect all of them. Uh, the first is to preserve its relationship with uh, with Russia, which has become increasingly important as the two countries seek to uh, weaken the U.S. role in the world, what they call American hegemony, uh, make uh, changes in the international order that are more favorable to autocracies than than democracies. Xi Jinping has been 
underscoring how the United States is in decline and Western democracies are failing and, and this relationship with, with Russia is, is very important to him to increase China's uh, global influence and, and, and position. Yeah. So I think that that's one goal. Uh, the second is to uphold territorial integrity and sovereignty, and that has always been an important feature of Chinese foreign policy. We know when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, uh, China also did not condemn uh, that action, Russia's use of force, uh, because it um, does want to support a country's territorial integrity and sovereignty. And let's remember that China has its own separate and important relationship with Ukraine, a good political relationship, as well as a close economic uh, relationship. And we've heard the Chinese underscore um, that position. And then there's the uh, relationship with the United States and other uh, Western countries, and particularly advanced industrialized uh, countries, countries that have the advanced technology that China needs, because China wants to catch up with the rest of the world and even surpass it in core strategic technologies of the 21st century. And so it really cannot have its relationship with these countries so disrupted in such a hostile place where it loses access to uh, scientific exchange and joint R&D um, and, and working together with Western countries on, on innovation. So I think all of those uh, those interests remain very important to China and, and they continue to try to straddle them. That last point feels like a particularly important one. I, I sense that uh, certainly here in in the UK, there's there's an there's a degree to which the sort of public discussion assumes that China no longer needs the West for its technological development that that it has established its own sort of freestanding uh, research and other capabilities. But it sounds like you're saying that actually that dialogue still very important. Well, I think that's China's view. It's not not only the view of foreign observers, uh, and and you can look at some data. I believe in 2020, uh, China produced about 16% of the semiconductors that it actually used uh, that year. But this is something that China has set out as a very clear target that they want to catch up in semiconductors, but they continue to lag quite far behind. There was also recently a paper written by a group of experts at Beijing University about, uh, I think, it's six areas of technology. But the overall conclusion of that paper was that China continues to need its relationships with the West in order to catch up with technology. So they were connecting the technology needs that China has in order to, uh, to achieve Xi Jinping's targets with its international relationships. And it's, uh, I think, pleading for a, a better US-China relationship. That paper ended up being posted, I think, only for a few days. I think the university there was was actually asked to take it down, which right. perhaps um, uh, underscores how uh, the Chinese leadership does not want the world to know, and particularly its own people, that it continues to lag behind in these really important strategic technologies of the future. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting indicator. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, Russia, I suppose, being pushed closer to China as a result of its choices vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, and, and particularly 
it seems as if um, if Western countries are going to drastically reduce their consumption of of Russian energy, particularly uh, gas and and to some extent oil, does then Russia become very dependent on the Chinese market for for its energy exports? China already imports quite a bit of energy from Russia, and Russia is its leading supplier. Uh, So Russia may want to sell more in the future. Of course, there's a big question about whether there will be a new uh, pipeline for gas in the future might run through Mongolia, but that wouldn't be open until at least 2026. So if we look at existing pipelines, the infrastructure doesn't exist today uh, to transport the gas that Russia is now selling to Europe, for example, to China. So it's not something that they can do overnight. Uh, But I also think from uh, the perspective of of China, that it probably does not want to be overly dependent on any one supplier. And uh, as I said, Russia is already number one, Saudi Arabia is number two. Uh, but it also gets uh, gets oil, for example, from Iran and some other suppliers. And I don't think that China would want to be in a position where it was getting 80 to 90 percent from Russia. Uh, that would be, uh, I think, um, a, an untenable position uh, for, for China. So, yes, China may be investing in some of these uh, companies because now the the Western uh, oil companies have divested from some of them and they're going to be cheap. They will be available. I'm sure that some of these Chinese companies will want to buy them up. But I still think that uh, at the the more strategic level that China is going to be careful about how dependent it it is on, on Russian oil and gas in the future. So is it possible to say that this situation is to some extent a kind of win-win for China? Because on the one hand, a lot of America's sort of security and military focus, having been trying to, you know, the the so-called pivot to Asia, which seems to come up every few years, and then, you know, America always gets dragged back either to the Middle East or to Europe or to other fields of conflict. But also, in, in an interesting kind of way, it, as we just talked about, makes Russia also more dependent on, on the Chinese market. So whilst uh, I'm not suggesting that China in any way sort of tried to precipitate this situation, that it benefits in both ways. I have a very different view. I think that China's interests are being damaged uh, by this conflict in several ways. Uh, first, I think a weakened Russia is not in in China's interest. So China was, uh, of course, already a far stronger country than than Russia, and yeah. uh, and and there was no way that Russia was ever going to overtake uh, China. So uh, people already yeah. said it was the the junior partner. But having a severely weakened Russia, to my mind, means that uh, Moscow isn't the close partner or may not be able to be the close partner going forward that that China needs because China has an increasingly tense relationship, uh, not just with the United States, but with so many countries, with uh, with, with Europe, uh, with Australia, with Canada, tensions with uh, with Japan. So China is, is, is really facing, I think, an unfair favorable uh, international situation. I think we can see that in some of the 
statements that Xi Jinping has made recently about the international situation being less favorable to China than than they had hoped uh, that it would be. So a, a, a weakened Russia, I don't think, is 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 what China wants to see. Um, secondly, uh, I think it's really worth underscoring that the war in Ukraine has brought together the United States and its allies in ways that is not in China's interests. We know that Beijing seeks to drive a wedge between the U.S. and its allies, and they have not been very successful, I think, and, and, and the Ukraine war has just driven together um, the uh, the NATO alliance, as well as uh, even our Asian allies that have supported the effort to impose uh, yep. sanctions on, on on Russia, and these sanctions have been unprecedented. Now, actually affecting uh, Russia's central bank, this has just never been done before. I think that China has to think about, in the event that it decides at some point in the future to use force to uh, against Taiwan and invade it, whether it would face uh, uh, more pres- pressure than it had anticipated, uh, maybe not to the same degree because the world is very dependent on the Chinese economy. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, the, the strength of U.S. alliances, the rapidity of the response to this crisis, I think is, is a real wake-up call for China. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought up Taiwan. I mean, I know that you've done a lot of work on Taiwan and the South China Sea, and it is, it is absolutely a core question. And it seems to me that there's quite a lot of aspects to how the Taiwan question is possibly affected by, by these events. The first one I, I just wanted to ask you is, is whether for China, Taiwan feels like a very different question to what Russia is doing with Ukraine, and by which I mean that Russia formally recognized Ukraine as a separate country. Russia recognized its borders. And as we all know, in 94, Russia was a signatory to the Budapest Declaration and, and you know, is, was at that time a guarantor of, of Ukraine's security. Whereas China's approach to, uh, to Taiwan has always been to regard it as a renegade province, you know, to, to not, not, not to accept the idea of, of its independence. So is, is there an extent to which uh, China looks at Taiwan and doesn't accept that what's happening in Ukraine is in some way analogous? You're absolutely right. Uh, The Chinese uh, tell us almost on a daily basis that uh, Taiwan is completely different from Ukraine, uh, that Taiwan has always been part of of China and uh, has never been an independent uh, sovereign entity. Uh, And uh, they're there are certainly differences between uh, Taiwan and Ukraine. That said, uh, I do think that uh, China looks at this military operation against Ukraine and will draw some lessons from it. And I think that very importantly, that Taiwan will also learn some lessons and it may end up uh, resulting in Taiwan being far better prepared uh, for a an invasion than than it actually is today, so it will have it, it will have implications in any case, and I think that uh, yeah. that China has to think about 
the prospects of a possible failure if if Russia ends up in a sense being seen as having failed in its ambitions in Ukraine. And it's premature uh, to say that, but it, it is possible that Russia will be seen as having achieved very little and paid a very high price. And that lesson is one that China needs, certainly needs to learn because it could pay a very high price. I mean, after all, crossing um, uh, about a 100 miles of water is actually a far more difficult operation uh, than a, a land war uh, across land borders that Russia has launched against Ukraine. Yeah. And, and thank you for, for, for bringing that up, because that's sort of where, where I wanted to go next. And as you rightly say, um, militarily, uh, you know, if we look at Russia and Ukraine, it's, people talk about sort of peer-to-peer warfare. I mean, obviously, Russia is a much bigger country. There was an expectation prior to the invasion that Russia would quickly be able to reach Kiev, would topple the government, and, you know, this thing might take a few days. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened. And and there may be lots of reasons for that. And and historians of the future will be analysing those. But in part, it appears that uh, a relatively well-equipped and sophisticated military defending its home territory, you know, is extremely difficult to dislodge. And, and that's something that perhaps a lot a lot of analysts need to catch up with. And as you've mentioned, when we're talking about Taiwan, you don't even get to that before you've crossed 100 miles of sea. So do you think that the whole sort of strategic calculus inside China's military has changed as they look at Ukraine and they think, well, hang on a minute, to mount a highly ambitious amphibious invasion of a well-defended, sophisticated, highly motivated country. Is, is that something that now looks very different in, by, the, by the time you're on the 1st of April 2022? The Chinese military is aware, I think, of its weaknesses and deficiencies, even as it has uh, gained some confidence as it is conducting more sophisticated uh, joint exercises and acquiring more advanced weapons. Uh, But the military still, when it writes about itself, does highlight uh, its deficiencies. And I do think this war in Ukraine um, will uh, make them uh, even more aware of, uh, of... the challenges that they that they face in a potential operation uh, against Taiwan. Uh, but ultimately, of course, this is a decision that would be made by the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, not the military itself. Uh, if Taiwan were to declare independence or if the United States were, let's say, to recognize uh, Taiwan is an independent sovereign state. I think neither of these outcomes, by the way, are remotely possible. Uh, but those those yeah. are Chinese red lines. And then I think that they would not hesitate uh, to launch an attack, even if they did not have 100% confidence that they could achieve it. Uh, but in the absence of uh, crossing of those red lines, I think that China has a very sophisticated uh, and large toolbox that it can use uh, against Taiwan for uh, really gray zone tactics that are below the threshold uh, of uh, of an invasion. And the military is one of them. It operates almost on a daily basis in in uh, Taiwan's air defense identification zone, but there's also economic and diplomatic coercive uh, measures that that China is using. And the goal is really to instill a, a sort of psychological sense of despair within Taiwan that uh, that the uh, the United States uh, cannot cannot save them. 
uh, and that they cannot defend themselves and therefore they should just uh, surrender uh, and, and, and avoid uh, this, this terrible war. And, and I think Ukraine just sends a, a different message to the people of Taiwan that they can fight, they can put up a resistance, that they can actually uh, maybe even uh, win against a stronger uh, military. Uh, un- unfortunately, China is sending disinformation to Taiwan saying that, well, the U.S. military didn't save Ukraine, so it's not going to save you. You're going to get abandoned. Um, so that that's that's a problem uh, that, uh, yeah. that that I think that we, we have to... Uh, always uh, try and and combat the disinformation that's coming from countries like uh, like Russia and and China but there's so many there's so many military elements of this war that I think the PLA will study for many months uh, to come I don't think they'll draw lessons very very quickly but one lesson I think will be that they should if they do launch an invasion of Taiwan, that they should really use a very, very large uh, force. Uh, they should not go in with incremental force uh, and, and probably should try to decapitate the leadership very early on. Uh, and uh, they they should uh, in, ensure they get control of the air uh, and uh, the ports and uh, really make it a fait accompli that, uh, that, that would ensure victory. But I think that they will not have that confidence uh, going forward. But again, it doesn't mean that they won't launch that attack if they are uh, told to do that by the party. Yeah. I think it, it's easy to sort of talk about Taiwan to exclusion of other uh, countries in the region, but it, obviously the, the South China Sea is a is a contested zone between several countries and then of course China has complicated land relationships with Vietnam with India with, with other neighbors so uh, i suppose sort of putting the same question again but but cast more broadly does this sort of change that strategic balance in in east asia even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think there was growing concern in the region about the possibility of a real military conflict um, in their backyard. And in some cases, like Australia, uh, the concern, of course, is not about a war in, in their backyard, but maybe somewhere like the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait that would necessarily affect their interest, even though it was not geographically very close. So we have heard uh, the the country, of course, that is uh, that has the most concern has been Japan. And uh, Australia has also voiced concern about the potential uh, for a conflict in the, in the Taiwan Strait. There's no doubt that countries in Southeast Asia um, have always been concerned about uh, the assertive actions that China has been taking in the South China Sea, but the most immediate threat to them is their inability to access uh, resources uh, that is rightfully theirs under the Convention of the Law of the Sea, and that includes things like fish and uh, and and energy. Yeah, I think that years ago Southeast Asia used to think that Taiwan was a very separate case because Taiwan was part of China, and so if China invaded Taiwan, that would be sui generis. It wouldn't necessarily have implications for them. But I think that's changed. Now I think many Southeast Asian countries fear that if China uses force successfully against Taiwan, that it will embolden China to use force to settle their territorial disputes with them. And there's no doubt 
out that India uh, has that concern. And we know in 2020, there was already uh, a skirmish that took place um, uh, along the line of actual control and Indians and Chinese lost their lives. And we could uh, certainly see uh, more uh, military uh, operations and more fighting along that border. So I think on top of all of that, this war in Ukraine has just served as reinforcing that already growing concern about the potential for uh, China using military force uh, to settle its its sovereignty claims and territorial disputes in the region. Coming towards the end of our time now, I I want to sort of go back to to Russia-Ukraine. Of course, there's a risk of getting ahead of ourselves, but it looks as though uh, Russia's advance has sort of ground to a halt a bit. There's some evidence of Ukrainian counterattacks regaining certain towns and in cities within their country, regaining control. Um, It's possible to imagine a situation where basically the lines of control are pretty much where they were when Russia first invaded. If there were to be some kind of negotiation, at the end of which uh, the, the borders of Ukraine were to change, do you think China would take a position on that? Or would it, would it continue its sort of long-held um, position of kind of non-interference? Because on the one hand, the territorial integrity argument seems to me is, is, is rather sort of thrown open in that context. But on another hand, you know, the kind of not wanting to get involved too heavily, which is is a feature of Chinese diplomacy, is also in there. Well, if there is an outcome that changes borders that's accepted by Ukraine, uh, then I see no reason why other countries, including China, would not accept it as well. But if the government of Ukraine does not accept those change in borders, then I think China will remain silent, just as it did in 2014 with, uh, with Crimea. Whatever the outcome is, though, at the end of this war, I would say that there is one area in which China will uh, achieve a big win, and that is that it will uh, help with the reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was already part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, China does have the capability to uh, provide loans and infrastructure. Uh, It has been uh, engaged in projects all around the world. And I think that this is will be an opportunity for China to strengthen its relations with Ukraine, even as it continues to preserve its relations with Russia and continue to take that to new heights. Because I still think yeah. that ultimately, as long as China's relationships with the West remain contentious, um, and, and, and I think that will endure for a long time to come. We are really in uh, a major strategic competition with China that this relationship between China and Russia will continue to be very important to Beijing. And so then my final question is really about that contentious relationship between China and the West. And I suppose what I'm keen to understand is uh, your perspective on how much is this about Xi Jinping himself? Clearly, he has taken China in a more authoritarian, more nationalist uh, direction. But are China and and Western countries, notably America, stuck on this pathway uh, of increasingly contentious relations? Would it require a change of leadership for that to change? Or are there things that could reshape that relationship and take it back to the more sort of cooperative one that we perhaps enjoyed a decade ago? Well, I think it's highly unlikely uh, that 
the relationship of the United States and other countries, um, and this is, of course, mostly in the developed world because the developing world has a very different relationship with China. Yeah. But uh, the uh, if we were talking about Europe and the United States and other um, advanced industrialized countries, I think that these countries have been uh, have had a, a wake up call about what Xi Jinping's ambitions are um, and what he is willing to do in order to achieve the goals that he has set for China, I think that it is highly uh, unlikely that there will be a return to the status quo ante. A lot of this is attributable to Xi Jinping, uh, but there is, I think, a, a sentiment in China, a shared view that China's time has come, uh, as I said, that the, that the United States is in decline um, and that China needs to seize this opportunity in order to uh, advance uh, its interests. And uh, I think Xi Jinping, in fact, is probably not getting very good advice. Uh, he increasingly, like Putin, has this very small inner circle uh, of, of people who give him advice on policy. I don't think he's particularly well-informed. I think, for example, he continues to believe he can drive a wedge between the United States and Europe, yeah. which I think is going to be uh, impossible to achieve uh, at, in, in this current international environment. Ukraine has only made that more, uh, more difficult. So I think we are in a very prolonged uh, competition with China. There may be things that we can work together with China on. I hope climate change is one of them. Um, maybe uh, the issue of nonproliferation as it relates to North Korea uh, might be another. Uh, but for the most part, I think that the interests that the West has are at odds with China's interest and, and China's ambitions to change the international order and insert its own values and norms and practices into that order are increasingly objectionable to the countries that were part of forming this order after World War II. And I don't see any sign that Xi Jinping is drawing lessons that would result in changes in Chinese policies. If he does draw lessons that China needs to change its approach uh, to the way that it is dealing with individual countries and the way it is interacting with the international system, then, of course, there are possibilities of a change in uh, our relationships with China. But I just think that's highly unlikely. Well, on that sobering, but I think completely uh, believable note. That's where we're going to leave this discussion. Bonnie, thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge, both on China and the wider geopolitical perspective. It was great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.